Chapter Two of Red Arrows in the Night by Daniel A. Lord S. J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Two. I stood with the arrow in my hand. There must certainly be something I could say. Yet what could a person possibly put into words when his best friend has handed him an arrow that a ghost or a marauder or a medieval archer risen from a dusty tomb has shot into a nearby wall? when a bell suddenly sounded, deep and resonant, and quite in keeping with the character of the house. I know I jumped. Tim laughed, took the arrow, and threw it back onto the buffet. He explained the bell. Warning bell for dinner. Used to mean in England the signal for everyone to dress. If your bags are here, you can at least wash up a bit. The butler had opened my retrieved bags, so without unaccustomed service of luxury, a bath and a change seemed called for. Tim left the door between our rooms open when he went in to change. We continued to talk, disjointed, pleasant, friendly chatter, with no particular point or purpose, other than the reassurance of the sound of his voice and what I hoped was my pleasant response. We were ready in ten minutes, and again ensconced in the window seat. We had turned off the lights in our rooms, but now soft lights flooded the terrace outside the house. I noticed that our rooms faced away from the main road, as did the dining hall, and toward the rise of land where the archer had appeared, and then on toward the sea, which lay out of sight. I took in the fact that the hill was crowned with a little summer-house, pseudo-Greek in character, but charming in black outline against the deep blue of the evening sky. Suddenly onto the light-flooded terrace walked a woman. Madame Leclerc, Tim said in quiet explanation. The wedding seems to be definitely fixed for next month. He laughed ironically. I knew that his laugh was dismissal of any chance that he would be heir to the Arkham Old Estate. The woman on the terrace was parading, I might also say, dramatically. She was clearly tall and not too large for classic beauty, but she had an air and a distinction of manner that appeared in the way she walked and the artful way she handed an obsolescent fan. At length she sat down in a deep garden chair, her long evening dress dropping in cloudy folds about her. She fell naturally into a stage picture. Whatever the beauty or lack of beauty in her face, she knew how to move, with the studied grace of one who has made an entrance in order to charm her audience. Then as we sat, the only spectators of this graceful little scene, I suddenly sensed that Tim grew tense. Another woman walked out onto the terrace, but this woman's step was young and eager, and her dress was clearly youthful. She handed the woman in the garden chair a handkerchief and something which was answered by a languid wave of the older woman's hand, and then disappeared once more into the house. Tim seemed to sink back relaxed when she left the scene. And she, I asked quietly, Madame Leclerc's secretary, Beth Henley. I wanted to ask more questions, but something in Tim's manner put a complete period after that subject. He got up and walked across the dark room to his desk opened it quietly, and came back with two sheets of paper. Neither is the original, he explained, both transcripts. Back of him there was a small wall bracket light, which he flicked on. Before he began to read, he explained briefly, This is from my uncle's first letter to Dad, after his partial recovery from that hunting accident. The original letter was destroyed. I kept this excerpt. I am lying in the hospital in Carlsbad. Batters are my pains. Horrible as it is to know that I shall never walk again. My greatest pain is that there is nothing I can say to you who have lost your son. Had it not been for his heroism, I should probably be the one lying dead back there in the jungle, and he might be in my place, 
sitting in a German hospital, and knowing what it means to be a helpless invalid. For all that, James, I feel utterly guilty. I invited Chris on that hunt. I made all the arrangements for the trip. My carelessness exposed him to that charging rhino. He died to save me. And the cavalry that is mine, well, even that cannot bring your son in a resurrection that would give you joy. Forgive me, James. I cannot face you until the memory of his death, for my sake, has grown a little more dim. Rhetoric, I couldn't help saying, too emotional for a man of his age. I, too, felt it was insincere, Tim agreed. That's why I kept it and read it to you now. I hated to open the wound, for I knew how hurt he was, yet somehow I sensed a connection that I could not understand or explain. But your uncle did come back. He did take over, sad as he pretends to be, or to have been, over your brother's death. He still doesn't mind being the heir. My voice died off, as a voice will when the speaker knows he is saying more than he means to say, or that he can't find the right words for some unpleasant, difficult truth. He came back right enough, wheeled in by that horrible, hunchback valet of his. I'm sure that I raised myself perceptibly from my seat. So that's who he is. Tim looked at me in surprise. The chap in the porter's lodge? I queried. He opened the door as I passed by. I felt like asking, Charles Lawton or Boris Karloff? But Glott and Karloff are that way only on the stage, said Tim. Well, my uncle is wheeled in, and I had no idea of what was going on. He takes over completely. Dad was ailing during that last year, but he insisted on my going on with my work. Had I been here instead... He stood up and crushed a cigarette in an ashtray. Let's go down, he said. The lights all the way down the beautiful old staircase had been turned on. When we reached the first landing, we stopped. There Tim opened a door in the wall and flicked on a light. We stepped into a small room, the far end of which was apparently a large stained glass window. Because of the darkness outside, I could not make out the figures in the glass, only the meaningless wanderings of the leaded mullions. Around the room were small card tables and deep, comfortable chairs, which for some reason looked surprisingly new. On the walls were sporting prints, clearly a card room, beautifully furnished and yet apparently not used. Nice little card room, I said. He shook his head. No, it's a chapel. I know my face must have mirrored my amazement. I could only look at the card tables, the sporting prints, the leather chairs, the smoking stands, to realize Tim must be joking. And yet that stained glass window. Rather, it was a chapel, he amended. To my surprise, he blessed himself and knelt briefly as in prayer. I did the same thing, though my bewilderment interfere considerably with any prayers I might have thought up on the spur of the moment. When he stood up, he began to talk quietly. I always make a little act of reparation, he explained. I told you that my uncle had made hardly any changes in the place. Well, this is the hardly. You see, the Archimolds who came from England couldn't forget the little secret chapel in which the priest had said mass for the hunted Catholics. That was the dearest place in their home, the source of their strength and persecution. So when, even in this land of religious freedom, they came to build here on the general plan of the place they had left in England, they included the little chapel. They put it here near the staircase so that any of the Erkenwolds coming up or going down the stairs could drop in for a visit to the Lord. My father had the bishops leave to have Mass said in our chapel three times a year, and we all loved those big days. It seemed incredible that with their family record of Catholicity, one of them should. Yes, Tim continued, Uncle Henry had it ripped out. 
I'm sure that to the end Dad didn't know that Uncle had fallen away. I never guessed it. That wheelchair was his excuse for his not going to Mass. But the moment he took over the place, the chapel went. His disguise was over. You've no idea how he hates the church. I've met ex-Catholics in my day. If they all have one note in common, it is the embarrassed, guilty hatred they feel toward the religion they have deserted and betrayed. We walked through the main drawing room and out onto the terrace, where Madame Leclerc welcomed us. She turned on him a practiced smile, which, thanks to the light and her masterful makeup, for just a moment made her tired, wrinkled, past middle-aged face seem beautiful. Her voice had a faint, noncommittal accent. She offered her hand as if she expected it to be kissed. Expectations, as far as Tim and I were concerned, were not fulfilled. Then Beth Henley came in, and between Tim and the girl there swept a current that was like the sudden turning on of the electricity in two powerful poles, and with the best of reasons. She was about twenty-two years old, charming, gracious, not quite blonde, not quite red-haired, content to be as God had made her, slim and vigorous. Her preferred hand was gentle and strong at the same time. She called me Captain just once, and then at the unspoken plea in my eyes she called me Luke, as she called my Lieutenant Tim. Did you? asked Madame Leclerc, in a correctly modulated voice. Hear of the simply distressing practical joke that was played on us? Or do you think it was perhaps a stray arrow from some carelessly managed archery range? But where in the world would one find an archery range around here? Do people play at silly games like bows and arrows any more? I thought only Cupid. Dear me, how dreadfully afraid I have always been of Cupid, the naughty fellow. But in the midst of dinner, an arrow in one's wall. Ah, many a time in the course of a dinner, an arrow aimed at one's heart, or better still, at the heart of one's partner. She was the kind of woman who was what you might call a chain-talker. Each word seemed to suggest another word. She lighted each succeeding sentence from the faint spark of the sentence that was dying. I knew this could go on indefinitely, so I settled back to chain-smoke cigarettes, willing to act as interference for Tim, who was plainly eager for a few quiet words with Beth. Ah, for the selfishness of young love, and ah, for the men like myself, who suffer ancient bores, that young love may have its chance. Again the mellow old bell rang. I had a quick glimpse of the butlers pulling the cord that vibrated the ancient morning. I gave Madame Leclerc my arm, and Tim tossed me a grateful look as he tucked Beth's fingers into the protecting crook of his hand. We walked into the dining hall, now bright with the candles, that were set on the table and on the buffet, and took our places. This time it was I who was to sit facing the arch that framed a sector of the garden and the softly lighted terrace. Even as I looked, the butler switched out the terrace lights and plunged the garden into sudden gloom. Madame Leclerc stood at my right, next to the vacant place at the table's head. Tim and Beth Henley were across from me. Then, for the first time, I noticed that there was no chair at the uncle's place. And though we had talked of him so much, and I had thought of him so often, I realized with a start that I had never seen him. There we were standing, accorded attention, while the master of the house deliberately kept us waiting. No one made a move to sit down. Even the women waited patiently. We just stood at attention, kept there by the unseen host who demanded this as his due. The butler moved to the door near the buffet, and back of the uncle's place. So, I thought, that is the corridor to his apartments. The door swung open, and an impatient voice growled, Look out for my foot, you fool. If you bump it, I'll kill you and into the dining hall came the processional. Processional is a large word to describe the interests of two people, yet no lesser word will do. 
The wheelchair was no ordinary clumsy, heavy affair. It was evidently a special job, as finely done as a high-priced car. It moved without sound, almost without pressure, and it could be handled either by an attendant or by the occupant himself. The occupant immediately gripped my attention. He sat erect and stiff in the chair. He seemed to move his head hardly at all, as if he did everything, with his eyes, which kept moving at an almost terrifying rate of speed. He was not old, hardly farther along than his mid-fifties, his jaw undershot in a look of perpetual defiance. My upsweeping glance reached the attendant. Though this was exactly what I had expected, I was none the less startled when I saw on back of the chair the man, fit attendant for a proper master, who had been my reception committee at the porter's lodge. Deftly he wheeled the chair to the head of the table. "'Go get your dinner,' the uncle tossed at him, over his shoulder, and without a glance at any of us the attendant was gone. Since he acted as the uncle's valet, I will henceforth, for convenience sake, refer to him simply as the valet. I deliberately honor his unique unpleasantness with a capital V. "'Uncle,' said Tim, "'this is my friend Captain Luke Foster.' "'I've heard of you,' replied the uncle. From the tone of his remark I might have suspected that he'd been told I was a murderer, a dope peddler, a baby snatcher, or first cousin to a rattler. That was all the welcome I got. Then to the assembled foursome. Well, sit down, sit down. His voice rasped and heckled, and grated like a file over chinaware. You'd think the lot of you were waiting for Grace. Don't waste your time. Grace used to be said in this house, when tribute was still being paid to Rome. Those days are gone. It wasn't that I wanted to be heroic or that I chose to insult my host, but something inside me made me deliberately cut him short. I blessed myself, quietly said my own grace, blessed myself again, and looked up. His eyes were blazing, and to my pleasure I saw that my gestures had been duplicated by Beth and Tim. "'Another Catholic?' demanded the uncle. "'How a scientist, as I hear you are, can believe in medieval superstition?' Perhaps, I answered, suddenly realizing that politeness would be wasted upon this fellow. I believe because I am a scientist. Sit down, all of you, he ordered, and we sat. Not many months before I had seen Maurice Evans in Hamlet. That perverse sense of humor which saves us when we might otherwise let anger swell into murderous passion may be one to call this old growler Uncle Claudius. Intuition is sometimes much too accurate. Whether she was trying to ease a difficult situation, or merely giving her naturally garrulous nature free play, or hogging the center of the stage, Madame Leclerc took over, began to talk, and wafted us through the soup and fish, and up to the roast on a river of conversation that left us free to float along, to eat quietly and hide away in the thickets of our own thoughts. Then that perversity which makes a man excite trouble when he should be wanting to avoid it made me look across the table at Tim. Would there be any problem about my getting into the village in the morning, Tim? I asked. Not a bit, he replied. There are three cars in the garage. Fine, I said. I thought I'd go in for the first Friday. The uncle looked up from his roast and did a little silent target practice of his own on me. Said Beth quickly. Might I go with you, and Tim? She added. Let's all go, concluded Tim superfluously. But I was not through baiting the bear at the head of the table. Too bad, I said, that you haven't a chapel here, on so beautiful an estate. We had a chapel, shot back the uncle. Really? I asked, all innocent interest. I saw Tim's eyebrow raised in surprise. Was I being deliberately or forgetfully stupid? Yes, the uncle retorted, 
but I've put it to useful purpose at long last. It's a card room now, a place where a man can go and relax, meet his friends, act natural, be gay. That's what I do in a chapel, I replied, my innocence growing in leaping bounds. I relax, meet my friends, act supernatural, and really am very happy. The uncle laid down his knife and fork and bent upon me a look which I suspected he had tried on many a subordinate, with mighty effect. It merely made me want to laugh. I tolerate the faith or lack of faith of any of my guests, Captain. I do not wish religious propaganda to be broadcast at my table. Why, Mr. Erkenwold? My eyes were wide with guilelessness. I thought that the religious tradition of the Erkenwolds was as old as the history of England. Then let it die with me, he said with quiet venom. I shot my own arrow into the dark, being careful not to see where it would land. Tim, I said, and put laughter and guileless mirth into my voice. As officers in the United States Army, we have to keep an eye on your uncle. You know, when a man gives up his loyalty to his religion, I always wonder how much loyalty he still has for his country. Loyalty is such a fundamental thing. The uncle looked positively purple. He could not stem his rage. Damn nonsense, he cried. I'm a better American than you can ever hope to be. I love my country without splitting my allegiance with some other in foreign power. God bless America. I'll say that even if a Jew did say it first. Who could miss the contempt he put into the word Jew? I'm a patriot, a better patriot than ever since I ceased to be a Roman and became entirely, absolutely American. Again, Hamlet occurred to me, but it was not the uncle in Hamlet. It was the mother who did protest too much. Like the guardian of the water-wheel, I stepped aside and let the even-splashing, cool, innocuous stream of Madame Leclerc's deluded monologue again carry us peacefully nowhere. But the uncle was far from through with me. Or was it some secret worry, some guilt in his own soul, some recurring voice of conscience that would not be drowned, that goaded him to hound the subject? He pointed his knife at me with a gesture that seemed to skewer me. I hear you and this nephew of mine are working on a new type of magnetized bullet. I nodded. I'm interested in all things scientific, he continued. That's the field in which lies the future of the world. Not religion. Not superstition. If you're using religion and superstition as synonyms, I gently corrected, may I present you with a thesaurus for Christmas. I don't know what dictionaries say about those two. I talked from experience. Did you? He switched back to the bullet. Bring your plans and drawings with you? Well, in a way, yes, and in a way, no. What's that nonsense mean? He demanded. Tim and I, and perhaps an expert, could read them and understand them, but the layman. An expert could? He demanded too eagerly. Then he restrained himself. I'm no expert, but if you would be willing to show an old patriot the thing that is being developed to save our beloved country. I'm proud of Tim, you know. That was such a lame ending. It was amusing to note another old custom that had been retained. After dessert, the ladies left the table, and us men. I learned later that Beth had gone to her room. We three men sat silent, smoking. There were brandy and liquor, but Tim and I didn't take either. The uncle drank alone, and too much. Tim had moved to my side of the table, and together we looked out into the bright autumn night. The sky was a deliciously cool blue-green. The line of the rising lawn was clean-cut against the horizon, and the stately columns of the summer-house stood starkly outlined in the light. Inevitably, I thought of a scarlet archer. Inevitably, there rose again a perverse desire to badger the old boy. Interesting legend, isn't it? That story of the scarlet archer, I began. 
I had badgered him right enough. In fact, he was fairly spluttering. Nonsense! The most horrible superstitious nonsense! Right out of the heart of those benighted Catholic times. Imagine the rot! A scarlet archer rising out of his grave. And if he did rise out of his grave, what has that to do with his death, and anybody's death? He continued to splutter, but when a person rants too long, those within earshot cease to listen. I was merely chuckling inside myself, paying no attention to anything that he said. Chuckling, that is, until all of a sudden, all thought of laughter died in my throat. I had been looking absently at the summer-house, thinking of nothing in particular. Suddenly it seemed to me that one of the columns started to move. Only it wasn't a column. It was the figure of a man, clear and bold against the blue-gray of the autumn sky. He stepped from the vicinity of the summer-house, and walked along the brow of the rise of land. I know that drops of sweat appeared suddenly on my forehead. I know I fumbled in my throat before I found my voice. When I did speak, the words were not voiced in terror, but in irony. It seemed almost as if the figure on the hill had come in answer to the challenge of the angry man at the head of the table. "'You may be entirely right,' I said quietly, though my throat was dry, and it took some wrenching to make my words clear and distinct. "'But the ghost or masquerader, the figure on the horizon there, deserts at least your curious interest.' He swung his head almost violently toward the figure that was distantly framed in the arch of the doorway. For a moment I thought his rigid hands, which were clutching the arms of his chair, were going to force him upright. Then it was almost as if he collapsed, but his eyes never left the striding figure on the rise. Tim, who had been playing lazily with the cigarette between his fingers, looked up. It was he who said in a hushed yet awestruck voice, "'The archer!' It was the archer right enough. There was no mistaking the outline of those medieval clothes, the strong, trim legs and hose and high boots, the leathern jerkin, and in his hand the unmistakable line of the bent bow. He reached a spot that could not have been more than ten yards from the summer-house. It was precisely the spot at which the lawn rose to a little friendly hillock that was almost exactly on a level with the dining-hall, which was raised, of course, by the height of the terrace on which the house had been built. Then, with a graceful swing, the figure wheeled toward us. His motions were skilled, exact, and even at a distance, ghost-like, and vague as he lifted his bow, plucked an arrow from the quiver on his back, aimed for just the briefest second, and let go. There was the musical twang of the bowstring. I heard the uncle scream just once, and then the swish of the arrow cut between him and myself, and was impacted, quivering in the wall beyond us. "'You fools! You fools!' It was the voice of Tim's uncle, and we were clearly the ones he meant. After him! Get him, ghost or no ghost! Get him, I say! Oh, if I were only young enough, strong enough! Whatever the power of his voice, it served as sufficient impulse to set the two of us racing around the table. We reached the arched door simultaneously, and together plunged out onto the lawn. I had not realized how far away that rising mound was, but as we cleared the terrace, the archer, almost as if he were waving to us, swung his bow into the air. Our drive toward him curved us slightly to the left. The clump of trees back of the summer-house swung, under the influence of our movement, directly behind the columns, blocking them out. In long, clean, athletic strides, the archer leaped up the slope and dived into the blackness created by the mingled shadows of summer-house and trees. We reached the rise of ground, swung across it toward the summer-house, and then stopped, feeling frightened, embarrassed, and a little foolish. There was not the slightest sign of an archer ghost or man, anywhere, nor was there the slightest trace of the passing of any mortal visitant. "'Do you believe in ghosts?' I asked, trying to be jocose. 
Tim was grimly serious. Not I, he answered. No, not I, but... And he voiced what had already been more than a suspicion in my mind. Do you know, I believe that my doubting uncle isn't so sure that ghosts can't come back. As prelude to death, I concluded. We walked back slowly across the lawn, feeling like schoolboys who, not having done their exercises, were about to face a stern teacher. Tim's uncle sat hunched up in his chair, but his eyes were blazing. You didn't get him, he hurled at us accusingly. Wherever he went, Tim began. And you call yourself soldiers, he taunted. Officers, I know lands in which no ghosts walk. I know police and soldiers who are trained to handle intruders. I know. He stopped abruptly. Then, with a speed I had not thought possible, he navigated the wheelchair across the room and pulled the arrow out of the paneled wall, leaving behind a gaping wound in the wood. He flung the arrow straight at Tim. It's for you, he meant it. He shouted furiously. That arrow is not for me. Whether it was meant as warning of death or as death itself, it is yours, not mine. Yours, not mine. The perverse desire to badger him welled up again. Mr. Erkenwold, I said, for a man who has given up all faith in the supernatural, aren't you being horribly bothered by the ghost of a scarlet archer? End of chapter 2 Recording by Maria Therese